Welcome to this live stream town hall. You can see here Congressman Kelly Armstrong is joining us live. Most importantly, to take your questions, he's on the Energy and Commerce Committee. They just, which is the timing's impeccable. He just got out of a energy subcommittee, apparently, where they're looking to decarbonize the grid. So we'll touch on that as well. But I just want to do a little bit of a setup here to give you some time to jump on and ask some questions to Congressman Armstrong. So, Congressman, first off, thanks so much for doing this. I want to start with the basics, if you can, because this grid stuff can get I mean, it can get wonky, right? If you're not in it every day. And so because I know this is um, definitely within your purview, talk to me like I'm a fifth grader. What, what's the most important thing people should know about what's happening right now that's not being talked about in the media? I think the most important thing is think of the grid like a piece of glass, right? Like if you go, if you put five pounds of pressure with your hand in the middle of a piece of glass, it's fine. You're not going to break it. You're not going to deal with it. But if you use like one of those escape tools and go into the corner of the of the glass and put the same amount of pressure on it, you're not only going to crack the glass in that corner, but you're going to screw up the integrity of the entire sheet of glass. And I think if you want to understand how grids work, why we were doing load shedding yesterday, it's because when you put those focused points of stressors on there, then the entire grid runs into being in trouble. And then there's interoperability and intraoperability. But when you have a, a weather event like we have had over the last five days from North Dakota all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, um, you, you run into significant stressors, not only because of what's going on in Houston or the rest of Texas, but actually across the entire grid. We've, we're actually pretty lucky that by our standards, it's been pretty nice the last couple of days. Yeah, that's uh, very, very true. So you you just literally got out of a energy subcommittee talking about decarbonizing the grid. Take us inside that meeting. What was some of the most uh, some of the things you heard? You're like, yeah, that that that's just not going to happen. Well, I think the first thing is, is that they say that we have the technology to do this now because we don't. Um, I think one thing most people don't recognize is the most efficient a solar panel can be is 33% um, from turning photons into electrons. We're at about 26 now. Wind turbines are 60%. We're at you know about 45% now. So under current technology, our efficiencies are actually very high. So the only way to deal with this is more and more. I mean, if if you are going straight away from oil, coal, natural gas, is more and more solar panels, more and more wind turbines. And I mean, and this has always been my comment and my question about all of this. Maybe it decarbonizes a lot of things, but we don't recognize the pollution that exists in order to create these things uh, before we ever get into national security about lithium, cobalt, all of the human rights issues with where this stuff, where this stuff is mined. But I mean, you're going to tear up 250 tons of dirt to make one um, electric car battery under current production. That's just the truth. And we don't do any of that here. So as we talk about lo lowering pollution and decarbonizing the atmosphere, I think we, we need to recognize that one, it's really carbon intensive to create rare earth metals. They're not that rare. They're not actually not that rare, but the mining and the refining process is, takes a lot of carbon energy to do. So um, they, and that's before we get into intermittent versus baseload power and a lot of different conversations, which hopefully, hopefully we'll have as we go, go on. You, you can jump in at any time. I think one of the things that, that people are wondering is here I am in North Dakota. I know the challenge is down in Texas, but why are we having rolling blackouts in North Dakota? And I'm going to set it up with this graphic here where uh, there's a big conversation now in Texas where they're with ERCON. They've kind of, I hate to use the word secede, but for lack of a better term, they've kind of seceded, if you will, from the national energy grid. So help us understand if I'm in Bismarck, for example, and I had a rolling blackout, 
Why is that happening due to what's going down in Texas? Well, I, it's not just Texas, Chris. I mean, this weather event is Oklahoma. It's all the way across the system. It, I mean, it was essentially from the Canadian border to the Gulf of Mexico. You have natural gas pipelines freezing in Oklahoma. You have wind turbines freezing. You have, uh, I mean, for the first time in 2020 is the first year where uh, renewables provided more energy on the Texas grid than coal. So not only do we share in amongst ourselves, but um, I mean, the economics and the capital part of this is people are trading uh, energy on prices and we're moving energy, not just within our own grid, but across grid lines where it's where where it's available. And one of the other answers, which is actually I think there is a lot of bright by broad bipartisan support for is that we have to get better at our grid infrastructure. I mean, we don't care how the energy is coming on, whether it's coming from gas, coal, or wind turbines, we know that we need to modernize both the interoperability of our grid and the intraoperability of our grid. So is there any political will to do that? I mean, it seems like, it sounds to me like, hey, this could be a great infrastructure project. We can come together, we can do something bipartisan. Is there the political will to upgrade the grid? We'll see. I introduced what's called the FAST Act, last Congress, which is a streamlined permitting process. It takes care of all the uh, all the environmental needs, but it allows for permitting to get done in a reasonable amount of time. We're, we will reintroduce that again shortly and be looking for Democratic co-sponsors. You know, we have a lot of these fights about pipelines. I'm in the middle of all of these fights. But the hardest thing to permit, permit across the country when you need a federal permit is a highway. It takes 10 years. Um, you think people don't want pipelines in their, last, in their backyard, ask them about high voltage transmission lines. That's just simply, I mean, we have to get better at permitting this type of infrastructure. Otherwise, we're going to continue to run down these problems. So I was talking to a guy today about this, and he said, Chris, we just need to put natural gas in every state. Like every state has got natural gas. We just need to get rid of coal and go to natural gas. What say you? I say I'm I, I'm I'm about as oily as they get. I've been in the business my whole life. Southwest North Dakota's my my <laughs> favorite place in the world to be. But when things get really really bad, I want coal and I want nuclear power. Um, natural gas, look at the spot. First of all, one of the biggest detriments to natural gas is it's an internationally traded commodity. Look at spot prices for gas over the last three days. Mm. And if that was the sole version of where you were getting your energy, you're, I mean, the, the actual end user's energy prices would fluctuate at an unbelievably dramatic rate at the most important time. You still can't beat coal energy for cheap, reliable, efficient energy, particularly when things get bad. And one of the things with Texas is they actually don't have as abundant amount of natural gas as you would think, primarily because they export their LNG to other states and other countries. And so, I mean, a state like Michigan actually stores more natural gas than the state of Texas because it's traded on the international scale. Uh, one of the things we don't talk about enough about why natural gas competes better in the current energy marketplace is one, North Dakota, Permian Basin, uh, shale developments that have uh, just unlocked this absolutely abundant resource where we can heat our homes. But the other answer is because we because our policies allow primacy on the grid for renewables, the one thing coal can't do is start up and scale back quickly. And natural gas turbines and natural gas facilities are easier to adapt to that. Because in North Dakota, we're about 30% renewables, but over the last two weeks, we've been under 10% and as low as under 3%. And those other sources of energy need to be able to make money when they're providing 70% of the power, because we really need them when they're providing 97% of the power. And one of the ways you can do that with natural gas is by scaling it up and scaling it back quicker than you than you can a coal mine or a coal plant. I want to get your take on this. And I asked um, Public Service Commission Chairwoman Julie Fedorchek the same question. So 
this was from Sunday's paper, Congressman. So I'm not talking about, you know, a long time ago. This is fairly recently. This is the president of the utility shareholders in North Dakota said the state's grid is both adequate and reliable for the time being. Worries of rolling brownouts are baseless. I'm quoting now. She says, we don't have the concern because we know we've got both resource adequacy and reliability. We feel these fears at this moment are unfounded. Within 48 hours, you've got rolling blackouts. How does this happen when you're the president of utility shareholders? Well, I, I, I mean, they might want to go take a meeting in Kildare right now. Um, that's, I mean, that's, it's just, I mean, and by the way, some of this is because this was a weather event that we haven't really, I mean, we don't usually see this event from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, but we did have the Arctic vortex two years ago on the East coast. And yeah. we, I mean, some of this is historical. The United States used to be the best country in the world at infrastructure, whether it's highways, interstates, rail, electric grids, um, through, I think mostly, undue um, regulatory burdens, we have really gotten past some of that stuff because of um, the way we, the, how many different hurdles there are to build infrastructure. But no, we, I mean, we have to address, we, we, we need to harden our grid, period, all across the country. And we need to recognize that we need it to work when it's 20 below. Um, if I, I said this, I think I told uh, somebody this yesterday. If your power goes out when it's 60 degrees outside in June and you maybe miss one episode of Yellowstone, that's not the end of the world. If your power goes out when it's 35 below in Western North Dakota and it's going to be there for three days, people will die. I mean, we know that. And we have to be able to be uh, to be able to turn on the power we need. And, um, and, and that is baseload power. And we have to continue with policies that allow baseload, reliable and resilient energy to exist in our power in our in our power grid. And if we don't, we're going to see more and more of this. Well, I think that's what scares people is when you hear the president, the shareholders say, hey, these are baseless claims. There's no re reason to worry. And within 48 hours, there's clearly reason to worry. As you mentioned, when it's 20 below, I want to share with you uh, what Commissioner Fedorchek told me in her reaction to uh, this quote I just share with you and then give you a chance to respond. I would say she wasn't getting good communication and good information from the engineers. And some of that is happening, Chris, where the people who know the engineers, the, the technical folks, they're maybe not being as honest as they should be or don't have the, the position to provide the clarity to like, you know, here are the real concerns. There is a lot of enthusiasm for the uh, the renewable movement and I mean we hear it all the way up to the president making promises that quite honestly can't be kept so I want to get your reaction to that congressman you I think she's I, I think she's a hundred percent right I mean and I think the, the I mean let's not discount the I mean this is a a perfect confluence of really bad policy really bad weather and extended across this but um the, but the I mean, the answer is that, I mean, it's true. It's, I mean, we know what is, I mean, the most reliable sources of energy. We know what they are. And but, um, but, the way but some of those failed too across the country. I guess what I'm getting at is I feel like when I talk to, to you or Senator Kramer and you talk about the swamp and the bureaucrats sometimes running the show because they know they're going to outlast a presidency or an administration. And so what I, what I took from her is maybe there's some engineers that know the intricacy of this stuff really well. They might be super pro, you know, Green New Deal, and they may not be relaying accurate information, for example, to the president of the utility shareholders for North Dakota. Do you think that's a fair assessment on her part? And what do you do to, to make sure that doesn't happen in the future? Well, I mean, I think we need to hold them accountable and hold ourselves accountable for doing this. But I think one of the things is we can't always blame the utilities. 
a lot of the reasons the utilities do what they do is because we've created bad federal policy, either through an under, undue regulatory burden or also incentivizing certain forms of energy to the point where it would be crazy if you are a for-profit company not to enter into those spaces. And I, I've been saying this the entire time I was in the state legislature and in Congress. Eventually, we have to have a conversation about where, where this mix outside of all of climate change arguments, all of the other things, where the mix of energy, different energy sources on our grid make it become less reliable because it really is important. And if that, I mean, like I said, we're at about 30%, maybe right at 29% of, uh, of the North Dakota grid as renewables. And we have shareholders and companies that are demanding more renewable power, which is which will drive economic and company decisions. But I'm not sure anybody is standing up and saying, listen, you that might look great and you might be able to have that conversation at a party and talking about how you're going green, but we're gonna have problems when it's 40 below if we go past whatever the number is. And we have to know what that number is. Let's get to some questions. Um, Leanne says, why did Biden share our power grid with China. Do you know anything about that? Don't. I don't. I mean, our grid is, I mean, you know, one of the things about Texas that's interesting is because they're separate, they don't take as many stressors from other, I mean, the interoperability of grids is both positive and negative, right? If we have a very sweet, really good, robust grid in the Midwest and California is experiencing a blackout, and now all of a sudden we're shedding load because we're sending too much of our power to California, I think we'd have a lot of our own constituents saying, why are we bailing them out when they have these unrealistic duck curve problems? Yes. But I don't know, I don't know what that, I, I, I don't particularly know about that. Okay, Four Sticks Nate says, hey, let's talk about the, is it the Bazinov Shale Basin and Biden bringing fracking to Ukraine and Russia? Any thoughts or comments on that? Well, so first of all, Ukraine and Russia are very different conversations. We worked hard to um, work on exporting some of our energy to the Ukraine and different Baltic countries last Congress, primarily to get them less reliant on Russia. But um, there's some pretty interesting. I don't know so much about the fracking. I, I mean, quite frankly, if Putin wants to frack, he's going to do it whether he wants us or not, right. or whether we give him permission or not. But there's some really interesting storage um, geographic or geological storage um, f uh, opportunities in the in the in these areas of Europe, which could I mean help bolster our relationships on exporting energy and help let those countries become less reliant on uh, Vladimir Putin for their fuel. So you've talked a lot about baseload energy. Um, my question for you is: So what are you going to do to ensure that we keep Coal Creek Station alive and well? Well, first of all, with Coal Creek, let's just be honest, you need a, you need a willing buyer and a willing seller. Uh, it's still private. Again, oftentimes when government tries to get involved in these things, we can cause way more problems than we can solve. What we have done, and I've worked very closely with Senator Hoven and Senator Kramer, is ensuring that there, that, that some federal regulatory regime would, will not be the reason they can't get the deal done. And we continue to monitor it, continue to talk to whoever we can talk to it about it. Because if we do find a willing buyer for this, then we want to be able to make sure that, <laughs> that there's not some federal program or federal regulation out there that has somebody back away. I want to get your take on this. So yesterday at the White House uh, press, presser, a White House reporter talked about um, Rick Perry, former energy secretary, governor of Texas, said Texans would rather endure days of blackouts than submit to federal 
regulation. Um, Jen Saki responded with this and uh, want to give you a chance to react, sir. I will say that there has been some uh, inaccurate accusations out there. I'm not sure if former Secretary uh, Perry made these, but uh, that it was the fit that that suggested um, that uh, renewables caused failures um, in Texas's power grid. And actually, numerous reports have actually shown the contrary, that it was failures in coal and natural gas that contributed to the state's power shortages. And officials at the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates the state's power grid, have gone so far as to say that failures in wind and solar were the least significant factors in the blackout. So coal and natural gas was the problem? Let's say you. Well, first of all, two weeks ago, Texas was getting about 25% of its power from renewables. Even before the storm last week, they were down to under like five or 6%. It's the overall policy of allowing for those things to happen. It's like what I said earlier. It's very, I mean, they, it is very difficult to make money on a coal plant if you are going to allow primacy from these other energy sources when they can sell their energy on the grid for cheaper than it costs to produce. And when you really need those power sources, and they did fail. Uh, I mean, natural gas lines froze in uh, Oklahoma. They froze across there. Uh, the the COVID-19 pandemic has really shortened the amount of gas because of the number of, of wells that aren't producing right now. But uh, how our overall energy policy has been framed out for the last 20 years has made it very difficult for coal to compete in the marketplace. And when you really need cheap, reliable power in really bad situations, coal's probably a, the best way to get it. Uh, I'll tr trust that when you have wind. We have wind, wind turbines that aren't turning and you can't store the energy. And so we, we create, such a, Donald Trump said it, wind is really good when you don't really need it. When you really need it, it's not that great. And that's just the truth. Uh, that brings you to my last question here. I want to know what you believe. So you have Senator Mitch McConnell after the vote. He votes to acquit and then says, hey, look, uh, President Trump is practically and morally responsible for what happened at the Capitol. Then President Trump sends out a statement. I think it was on Monday or Tuesday. says the Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell at the helm. What's your reaction to that? And what's the future of the GOP? Well, I, I and I've said this people if people are reading the tea leaves from this election and thinking that president, I mean, that we're going to go back to the intellectual and military elite Republican Party. They are not paying attention. Uh, they're just not. And that's North Dakota. That's all across the board. We need uh, President Trump. I think the single best thing he did in four years was create a create a space for people who have felt that they've been left behind by both parties in government. Um, I'm not a huge fan of true populism, but the populist, the populist movement that President Trump brought in in the America First movement is absolutely the future of the Republican Party. I do hope some eventually, I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell did a really good job of getting us three U.S. Supreme Court justices working very closely with the White House. But anybody who thinks that uh, Mitch McConnell is more popular in the Republican Party than Donald Trump isn't seeing the same thing I'm seeing. Very well said. Congressman Kelly Armstrong, I always appreciate the time. We will talk to you and do this again, I think, in a couple of weeks or so. So thank you very much, sir. Absolutely.